I hope that yesterday was a good day for you. I recognize, as I have talked to different people this morning, that some of your homes are filled with chaos on Christmas, especially if there are smaller children around. I also, in talking to some people, discovered that their homes were filled with quietness, sometimes loneliness. With the year that we have had and having COVID affect so many different people, we have had a year where many of you were experiencing a Christmas without a loved one that had been with you in the past. And so there are various stages of grief that are represented as well. And so in the middle of all of that, whatever state that you find yourself in emotionally or physically or uh, spiritually, I want you to know today that some of the things that you sang today are healing words to our soul. They strengthen us, they encourage us, uh, they bring a healing to us that uh, at whatever place you may be in life, our God knows exactly where you're at and knows exactly how to minister to you. This morning I want to continue with the message that I started on Christmas Eve and this is also the final message in the series that we have been in since October on what is truth. And for those of you that are guests here today or for those of you I know that there are many that let me know that you're going to be watching online because you're still in your Christmas pajamas, I want to welcome you as you welcome us into your home. But we recognize that we are in a culture today where truth is in crisis. Many people today have discovered that they will set their own belief system, they've created their own theology, their own truth, and, and they will say to you, well, what is true to you is good for you, but it may not be my truth. And so we have been going through passages of Scripture that have helped us in the middle of a, a, a crisis of truth and culture and people that are skeptical of Christianity and the Bible and, and of who we say we are as followers of Christ and be able to have conversations with them in ways that could bring truth to what we believe sometimes from outside of the scripture. We've looked at it from archaeology. We've looked at it from science. We've looked at it from the truth of the word, from those that are skeptics and uh, agnostics as it relates to creation and all these things. And now we come to this Christmas season and we ask the question Christmas Eve, Christmas, is it true? Christmas, is it true? Our theme verse for this whole series has been found in John 14, 6, when Jesus himself makes this declaration, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, I don't care what the world or what other people are proclaiming that there may be many ways to get to the Father or many ways to get to heaven. Jesus declares, I am the only way. And he was unashamed in making that declaration. And so as we come to this last message and we tie it together in the aspect of what Christmas is, I again want to acknowledge that in this message, Andy Stanley has provided some research that have helped me in this, and I want to certainly acknowledge that help. But on Christmas Eve, we started with this verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel of the Lord said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all people. Father, as we come before you this morning, I am grateful for the time of worship that we've had. And Lord, I know that there may be guests here that it may be unusual for them to be in a service where there are a Pentecostal outpouring of your Holy Spirit, where there were individuals that manifested your presence with words of knowledge and prophetic words and words of encouragement. And yet, Lord, in the middle of all of that, I pray that there would be a sense of peace as they are in the presence of the living God today. 
And Lord, I ask that you would use me as a vessel to address issues through your word that might directly affect them where they're at as you draw them to yourself. And we pray these things today in Jesus' name, amen. Most people assume that there is this universal code of conduct that we kind of all ascribe to. And and this code of conduct is basically reflected in the laws and the customs of every nation in the world. And it's been true pretty much from the beginning of civilization back as far as we can study civilizations. And it, it kind of ends up being this universal oughts that we hold to about how people ought to behave or how we ought to behave. And sometimes we hold ourselves accountable to it. Sometimes, you know, we, we will get into situations, for instance, and there won't be enough seats and we'll see people come in that need a seat. And we think to ourselves, I ought to get up so that they can have my seat. Or you will say something or you'll do something and in your mind there will be this sense of saying, I ought to apologize, but I really don't want to admit I was wrong, so I'm going to try to fight that within my own heart. And, and, and this sense of ought that sits outside of us, we know that it doesn't originate in us because if it did, we would just tell it to shut up or we would just change it. But it sits outside of us and begins to guide us in certain ways. And so sometimes we hold ourselves accountable to this sense of ought, but... While we may hold ourselves accountable to it sometimes, we always hold others accountable to that set of odds. And if you don't believe that it's true, then I want you to to just think in your own mind of things that you are holding other people accountable to, things that you may have been wounded by and you're thinking they ought to do this or they ought to do that. We are really, really good at holding other people to that sense. In fact, did you know that liars hate to be lied to? Do you know that cheaters hate to be cheated? Do you know that thieves don't like to be stolen from? In fact, if somebody breaks into the house of a thief, do you know that they will call the police? Because they don't like somebody stealing their stuff. For some reason, their ought within their own life is able to be put aside because they ought not steal from me. And in those moments, they reach out and they grab this external thing And they apply it to you. And there's a statement that's going around, and I've heard it several times from different individuals that look at me and they say, Pastor, I just want you to know I don't do guilt anymore. I I don't do shame anymore. I don't let those things bother me. In fact, I was watching online a Facebook post by one of those individuals that just doesn't do shame and guilt anymore. And by the way, that can be a colossal waste of time, watching these Facebook posts and getting involved in those things. But I was watching this because what intrigued me is this individual that told me that they don't do guilt and they don't do shame had no problem. In fact, it was I, I watched with amazement as they absolutely laid guilt and was adamant that everybody that was involved in their conversation was guilty but them. And I thought, how interesting is that, that we grab a hold of this external ought and apply it to everybody else's life. But when it comes to us, we can kind of just ignore it personally. And here is the hypocrisy that Christians and non-Christians share. We can't help ourselves. We can't stop holding other people accountable to an external standard that sometimes we ignore in ourselves. And all of this dynamic and all of the culture that we are living in that kind of condemns us underscores why the arrival of Jesus was such good news. 
It was such good news, and for those of you that joined us in one of our Christmas Eve services, we talked about when you hear good news, you lean into it and you hope it's true before you've even had a chance to really discover whether or not it is. But people were listening to the good news of Jesus and they were leaning in and they wanted it to be true. They wanted this good news to be true. And interesting enough, today the question that we face within our culture is not so much Christian or Christianity or Christmas, is it true? But the questions that are being asked today is Christianity, is it good? Is Christianity even good? Because I hear a, a rising voice in our culture, from, even from kids that have been raised in church, asking the question, is it good? And some don't know anymore. They don't know, is it good for society? Is it good for culture? Is it good for them? Will it affect their lives and how does that look? And maybe today, whether you're in this sanctuary or you're watching online, that's the question that you're asking. Is Not is it true, but is it even good anymore? And when you hear the news that the angel described, and I love the fact that this news was not originated on earth, it originated in heaven. An angel declared to you that this is good news. I hope that you lean into it. Because the amazing thing about the birth of Jesus is that when it was first announced, it was announced as good news of great joy. And this is the part that people have a difficult time understanding because he announced that it's for all people. For all people. Now, here's where we struggle. Because we recognize today that generally speaking, if something is good news for us, it's bad news for somebody else. For instance, I'm just going to put this in real practical terms. If the Patriots win the Super Bowl again this year, it will be good news for some of you. It will be bad news for Bills fans. Or if you buy a stock because somebody else is selling it and they think it's going to go down in value and you buy it and it goes up in value, that's really good news for you, but it's really bad news for the people who sold the stock. Or for those of you that may be business owners, if you are awarded a contract, it's really, really good news for you and for your employees. But it's really bad news for another business that was underbid by you that could have used that contract as well. And so this is kind of the way that we approach good news in our world. If something is good news for some, it's generally bad news for others. And so the fact that the angel declares to us that the coming of Jesus was good news for all people is difficult for us to begin to place within an area of context because that's not what we're used to in our world. But the angel basically is saying, listen, the coming of Jesus means that there are no losers here. There are no losers here. And in a world that's so divided, it would be hard for anybody to imagine a culture that could understand that something is good news for everybody and that nobody misses out. Because generally we are accustomed that if something is good news for one, it undermines or punishes another. So why was the birth of Jesus good news? of great joy for all people because the good news leveled the playing field. Again, when we hear something good, we lean into it because we want it to be true. We may look for reasons why it's not, but we hope that it's true. So if the birth of Jesus coming to planet Earth is such good news, then why the resistance? Why isn't everybody leaning in? And I believe that it might be because 
What some of you believe to be the truth is not the original version of the message of Jesus. Because in the original version, when Jesus came, he said, I have come to give life to all of you. In fact, do you know that the story of Jesus, the original version, was called the gospel? It wasn't called the Bible. It wasn't called the story of Jesus. It was just simply called the gospel, which is two old English words that are put together, which means good story. It was the best title that they could come up with from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news or gospel. And the good news was such good news that in the first century, it caught on like wildfire. And if the life and the message of Jesus doesn't strike you as good news, perhaps it's because you've not heard the original news. Because the original news was so extraordinary that it was worth telling. And so it was told. One of the things about the message of Jesus that stands out that levels the playing field is that the message of Jesus disturbed the self-righteous. I'm not going to ask any of you if you know people that are just self-righteous because we would all nod our heads. But the message of Jesus disturbs those that think that they are good. But it brings hope to those of us that know we desperately need help and that we're not all that good. But it was a humble reminder that we are not so good and people like us know that we've blown it. And so it was good news of great joy for all of us And at times, even though we reach out and we leverage that universal sense of ought when people hurt us, and when it comes to hurting others, we kind of play it down. But for people like us that know the fact that we are in desperate need of a Savior, this is good news of great joy for all people. Andy Stanley tells a story that I have found fascinating, and I want to share it with you because it gives this sense just a little bit of what it looks like in a microcosm. He said, on February 21st, 2018, Billy Graham passed away. And on March the 2nd, his funeral was scheduled in Charlotte, North Carolina. And when Andy Stanley had heard that Billy passed away, he called his dad and he said, listen, I know that they are only inviting 1,000 people. Dad, his dad is Charles Stanley, says, I think you're gonna get invited and you can only bring one person, so will you bring me with you? when you get your invitation. He says, and lo and behold, I was shocked when I received an invitation to go as well. And he said, so I took my wife, Sandy, and we went to the funeral. And he says, I want you to picture this. He tells this story. There were dignitaries, famous journalists, powerful political figures everywhere, from those in the past, those in the present. He said, everywhere you looked, there were people that you knew who they are, and they knew that you knew who they are because they were famous. He said it was incredible. He said, and most of all these people were big shots and they were used to being treated as big shots everywhere. He said, in fact, these people are used to having people with them, entourages all the time. He said, these people that showed up for the funeral that were invited are people that are used to traveling in motorcades. He said, they're used to showing up in black escalades and having somebody open the door and put a stool down so that they can get out without being hurt, helping them in and out of cars. He said, these, are used to, these people are the kind that are used to being made comfortable by everybody else, all of their needs being waited on. He said, they're the kind that are used to having people wearing sunglasses and earpieces as their security guards. And he said, the beauty of this day was that you couldn't bring your people, you could bring one people. And so all of these people, 
ended up on a level playing field. He said, what was interesting is all of us that were invited had to go to a warehouse. And it was 20 minutes away from where the ceremony was. And everybody is stuffed into this warehouse. And they're standing around and they wait for an hour and 15 minutes for school buses to come to pick them up, to take them to the funeral. He said, it was beautiful watching all of these people who knew that they were somebody have somebody that was a nobody tell them to get in line. He said, it was beautiful as I watched all these people having somebody standing at a school bus door open the door and tell them, I need you to go all the way in the back and sit two by two until you've filled every seat. And all of these people that were used to telling everybody what to do had to follow the instructions of a nobody. And they sat on those buses and he said, I laughed because they hadn't been on a bus since they were in elementary school. He said, and suddenly, everybody who thought they were important was not so important. And somebody who was not important was telling all the important people what to do. He said, we got on the school buses and it was a 20-minute ride to the outdoor tent where the funeral was going to be held. And he said, you could see people so uncomfortable sitting next to people and touching them while they're on the buses and it's bumpy and you can hear them kind of grumbling that they're unused to that. And then they get there and the doors open and the driver says, now I want all of you to file out from the front to the back. And they get out and discover it's freezing cold and the tent has no sides. And so they are told to find a place to sit. And he said, it was so cold in there that some people said, I can't stand. I've got to be in the sun. So they got up and gave up their seat and went and stood outside the tent in the sun where at least they had some sun, but it was no warmer. And he said, you could tell these famous people were miserable. And they stood or sat in the cold for another hour and 15 minutes before the funeral started. And he said, I enjoyed every minute of it. I am watching all of these famous people that couldn't be famous because there was no people to be famous for. And everywhere you looked, you could tell that there were people as they looked around that were more famous than them. And everybody milled around and waited for the ceremony to start because nobody was special that day. And the message that day, he said, that was even greater than the funeral message itself was this. You may be big in your circle, but you're not Billy Graham. So suck it up, buttercup. And the most amazing part of that dynamic is, he said, you could clearly tell the people who were uncomfortable not being famous, and they didn't like it because they were used to being special, and today they weren't very special. It leveled the playing field. And Peter, who eventually became one of Jesus' followers, was a good man. He was a businessman. He was a family man had a good reputation in the community, had brothers. And Luke, who thoroughly investigated all of this stuff, as we talked about on Christmas Eve, tells us in Luke 5, 1, one day Jesus was standing and he's teaching by the Lake Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, with people that are crowding around him because, again, the crowds follow them because they are leaning in. They want this good news to be true, and they're listening to him. And they're crowding around him, and they're listening to the Word of God. Now, I, I wish I could expand on this today, but... Needless to say, when Jesus was speaking, it is God speaking, and the people were not used to hearing God speaking the words. And this was before the New Testament, and Jesus was telling them about the kingdom, and the people were drinking up every word. And in the second verse of Luke chapter 5, it said, Jesus saw at the water's edge two boats 
left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. So fishermen at that time, they fished all night because in the cool of the night, the fish would come up near the surface where they could be reached by nets. And then when the sun came up, the water warmed up and the fish went deep where it was impractical for them to catch them in nets. And so in the daytime, after fishing all night, they would come out, they would dry their nets, they would get rid of all of the plastic cans and stuff that were in their nets at that time. And, you know, all the... the, the pop bottles and soda cans that you leave in the water, they're cleaning that all out. And then they roll them up after they're dry. They put them back in the boat and they get ready for their next trip. Peter had been up all night. He just finished the job. And he's getting ready to go home. Jesus looks and says, hey, Peter, can I get into your boat? And would you push off just a little bit so that all of these crowds that are here can be able to hear me? And so Peter jumps in the boat, rows out just a little bit, and Jesus stands there and begins to teach. And here's Peter. He's sitting there. He can't do anything. He can't leave early. He can't slip out and go and grab some lunch while Jesus is teaching. He can't fall asleep because Jesus is in his boat and everybody is watching him. And Jesus finishes his sermon. Peter's probably exhausted by now. And he's thinking, I can't wait to row this man back in and go home and go to bed so that I can get ready for work later tonight. And Jesus interrupts him and says, Peter, would you take me fishing? And so Peter rows his boat back out. These nets that he had just worked so hard to clean in a time when it makes absolutely no sense for him, he unrolls them and drops them down and he starts catching fish. In fact, they catch a lot of fish. In fact, they caught so many fish, it almost broke the net and almost sunk the boat, the amount of fish. And somewhere in the process, Peter looks at this rabbi, and he realizes something is going on. It was something that was so overwhelming that brought him to a sudden self-awareness, and suddenly Peter sees himself in a way that he'd never seen himself before. And suddenly he realizes that Peter is not okay with himself. Whoever he was before this moment didn't matter because in this moment with Jesus in the boat and all of the fish, he becomes ashamed and he lets go of his net and suddenly the fish and the fishing business and the crowd and his name and everybody watching on the shore, none of it mattered because his world was out of balance and he knew it when he was in the presence of Jesus. And Peter was not okay with Peter. And in the eighth verse of this chapter, it says this. And he fell at Jesus' knees. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. To which when we look at that story, we would say, wait, 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 wait. Peter, get up. You haven't done anything wrong. In fact, we would look at that and say, you did something right. You took Jesus fishing. That's the right thing. To which Peter would have responded, I didn't say I sinned. I didn't say I'm here to confess a sin. I'm here to tell you that in the presence of this person, I suddenly became aware of the fact that I am a sinful man. I am not okay. And I became more aware of that than I have ever been in my life. In his presence, something changes in me. And so when Peter says to Jesus, go away from me, he is saying, I need you to go away from me so that I can feel better about myself. Because in your presence, I'm not good with who I am. And I believe that that is one of the reasons why there are people that resist the message of Jesus. It's because in his presence, they recognize that they're not okay.
And they've created a world for themselves that as long as I stay away from the presence of Jesus, I'm all right with me. But in his presence, I recognize a great need. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, I want you to stand up. Jesus could have said, you know what? You're right, Peter. You are a sinful man. In fact, he could have told Peter, your greatest sin is still ahead of you. It's still in your future because after I do all of this with you and after I develop a relationship with you, you are going to deny me three times in the moment when I need your faithfulness the most. But he said, Peter, this is why I've come. That's why I'm here. That's why this is such good news because I level the playing field. And Jesus smiles and responds, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled the boat up on the shore, and Peter left everything. And he followed Jesus. And in the kingdoms of the world, that's all about power and prestige, it's okay. It's all about people's expectations and what can I do and how prominent I am. This is good news because Jesus brings a new kingdom. And he says, I've leveled the playing field. And the message that he sends to you today is, I know who you are and how you are. Just follow me. Just follow me. And that's what makes the good news such good news, is that in his presence, rather than demeaning us, he just lifts us and says, follow me. We know we fall short of our expectations. We know we fall short of the expectations of others around us. We know who we are inside and out. And Jesus still looks at us and says, just follow me. And we can. There's another example that's given in scripture. Paul shows up in the pages of history. And, and, and when he shows up as one whose name is Saul, he is an arrogant man to say the least. In fact, he describes himself. He says, when it comes to righteousness, I'm the best. You know, when it comes to good works, look at me. When it comes to being a Hebrew of Hebrews, I mean, look at me. When it comes to being a Pharisee, I'm the best. I don't know how any way else to say it, but just look at me, I'm the best. I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm great at everything I do. I'm a meticulous law keeper. Then he meets Jesus. And you know what label he gave himself after encountering the presence of the living God? He said, I am the chief of sinners. Something about the presence of Jesus that gave him a realization of who he was. How can you go from thinking about yourself being the best of the best to the worst of sinners? And he would answer, it was because I encountered God in a body. And like Peter, was just that sense of, please go away from me. Because I see myself in a new presence, in a new way when I'm with you and in your presence. And there's nothing I can do to make myself better. And Jesus says, stand up and follow me because I've leveled the playing field. And he says, and when you follow me, he invites us that we can change the world together. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That levels the playing field. Everybody in this room, everybody that's watching online, we've all blown it. We fall short of our own ambitions. We fall short of our own standards. We fall short of the code of others. 
We fall short of that nagging sense of ought that we feel accountable to and always hold others to. And the reason that Peter fell at Jesus' knees and suddenly recognized who he was is because just a little bit of glory came out of Jesus. The reason the Apostle Paul found himself face down in the dirt, scrambling for words and couldn't see and tried to figure out what was happening because just a little bit of the glory of Jesus leaked out when he was near him. And the God that we say we believe in and the God that we say we serve, his son came to earth to pay for our sins so that we could enter into his glory. And in the midst of the glory and in the light of his glory, everybody falls down on their knees before him. In fact, the Bible says, depending on the decisions that you make on this earth, and if you choose to hear this good news and ignore it, if you choose to say, stay away from Jesus because I like myself better when you're not around, there's coming a day when at judgment, every knee will bow. You will not have a choice, but every knee will bow in the presence of the glory of the Lord. And the good news of Christmas is that it has come with good news of great joy for all people so that we can enter in. And then he says at the end of that, well, what do I have to do? Just follow him. And he says, we'll leave our mark on the world together. And so in Luke 3.24, all fall short and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Listen, we are not made right by doing right. In fact, we're not even made right by saying, you know what, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, and I promise everybody around me today, from now on, I'm going to do good. You see, let me tell you why that falls short. Because promising to do better next time doesn't do anything to pay for what you did the last time. You see, it leaves a balance that is unpaid. So if I break a window in your house and I promise that I will never do it again, it does nothing to pay for the windows I've already broken. That's why you need more than a second chance today. This is why the playing field is level, because everybody needs a Savior. Everybody needs someone who can do something about what you've done in the past. And just proving and trying to do better in the future won't do it. And so he says, freely, freely. This is the difference between Christianity and other religions of the world. Jesus said, I give freely my grace to you. Everybody, the level field, the, the field is playing, the, the playing field is level for everybody. And the birth of Jesus was good news of great joy for all people because we all share something in common. We all fall short. And we all embrace the fact that we fall short. Billy Graham and his wife had five kids. His middle daughter was named Ruth. I had the chance to meet Ruth Graham a few years ago at an event. She seemed like a delightful person. But she readily admits that she is the free spirit of all of the kids. She was telling us about a time that she was rebellious within her life and then she wrote a story, and it's in a book, and you can read that, but she also began to share some things at her father's funeral. Many of you have read that book, and many of you have heard this, but I want to conclude with a story, and worship team, if you'd please come. She wrote this. I have learned in the weeks since my father's death that everybody has a Billy Graham story, but I have my own Billy Graham story. Some of you may have heard it many times, but it bears repeating because it speaks to the essence of who my father was and is. After 21 years, my marriage ended divorce, and I was devastated. I floundered. 
My husband had betrayed me at the deepest levels. I understood I had a biblical ground for divorce, but I did not want to be divorced. I did not want to hurt or displease God in any way. My family thought it would be a good idea for me to move away from the Shenandoah Valley to get a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live in Florida near my oldest sister, Gigi, and her family, and near a good church. The pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower, and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, they're almost grown, and they can't tell me what to do. Have you ever said anything like that? Nobody can tell me what to do. I knew what was best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo, and they said, Honey, why don't you just slow down? Let us get to know this man. They had never been a single parent. They had never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful, sinful, I married this man on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I had made a terrible, terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What, I, what was I going to do? I wanted to talk to my mother and father. So on my way to Montreat, I stopped and picked up my daughter, Windsor, from boarding school. I felt wrecked. I was coming home with my life in pieces. Shame weighed me down. I dreaded having to meet my parents' gaze. I didn't think I could handle what their eyes might communicate. I wanted to run and hide, but I could not. I had nowhere else to go. I couldn't undo my mistake. I knew I had to face it. I felt unworthy to go home, but I needed my parents. I look back now, overwhelmed by God's tenderness and timing, for it was at this, my darkest hour, that God stepped in with one of his most powerful metaphors in my life. My father, Billy Graham, was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. And I'm so grateful that God accepts me when I am hurting and when I am wounded and when I am broken. It was a two-day drive to Montreat. Questions whirled in my mind. What was I going to say to daddy? What was I going to say to mother? What was I going to say to my children? I had been such a failure. And then what were they going to say to me? We're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. You have ruined my ministry. All of these things were running through my mind. She said, many of you women will understand this because you don't want to embarrass your father and you really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. Many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bin in my father's driveway. And my father was standing there waiting for me. My father, who had every reason to rebuke me, who had every reason to tell me, I told you so, opened the door and he wrapped his strong arms around me. And he pulled me into a warm embrace and he greeted me with these simple words. Welcome home. There was no shame. There was no blame. There was no condemnation. Just unconditional love. My father's embrace at that moment was one of the most profound gestures of acceptance I have ever experienced. To be utterly broken and still accepted. To feel ugly and yet be loved. 
to feel like an outcast and still be welcomed. I marveled at the contrast between my heart full of shame and regret and my father's which was so full of love. I must have felt many things at once in his arms. Shock, relief, gratitude, safety, disbelief. The thing that I most definitely felt was shattered. And through his embrace, my father let me know I had permission to feel that way. He was not condemning me. No defense, no explanation was required. My father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. His one act of grace changed my life and informed me who I am. And I am so grateful that God accepts me as I am, hurting, wounded, broken. I am glad that he chooses me to be part of his family, regardless of my past mistakes and sins. He wants me. He cares about me. His arms are open to me at all times. Even when I am in the ruins, God stands watching the road, eager for me to come home to him. And God doesn't stop at the ruins. That's where it begins. But my brokenness qualifies me for his embrace. God does not hold in his hands a list of my failures. He's not waiting to judge me. He's waiting to be with me. He's waiting to embrace me. He's waiting to welcome me home. And then she said to this crowd of very important people, and that invitation is open to all of you good news of great joy for all people.